I'm Ben Weingarten. I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Will Chamberlain. I'm Ida Stepman. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Well, first of all, happy new year to everyone. We've got a jam-packed episode roaring, ready to go today. We'll start with Inez, who will be covering a different angle on Elon Musk's impact on big tech. I'll talk about the most recent COVID-related Twitter files dump. Emily will jump in to discuss President Trump's analysis of the midterms. And last but not least, Will will take us home with uh, the very contentious battle over the GOP speakership race, which may or may not be resolved by the time this episode is out. Uh, but with that, let's turn it over to Inez to kick us off. Um, yes, yeah, so I, I, basically we've covered a lot here and elsewhere. You've probably heard plenty about um, the free speech angle and transparency angle uh, to Elon Musk taking over Twitter for the last few months. Um, that's not a, a new thing to anyone, despite the importance of the digital public square and the debates over that. Um, but I wanted to call attention to a different aspect of the Musk takeover that I think may actually end up having a larger impact on the tech sector more broadly. Um, and I think is probably undercovered. So uh, Elon Musk has fired by um, different accounts anywhere from two thirds to about 75% of Twitter's staff. Um, and the bottom line here is that Twitter's still running, right? Um, he's cut his payroll by two thirds to three quarters and Twitter is still running. Um, and I think that this example is gonna become very, very important uh, as the tech sector moves towards larger and larger layoffs, um, which we're seeing in, in the headlines um, increasingly in the last week and actually the last two months since about November, there have been some pretty substantive layoffs in the tech sector in, in uh, Meta, which is Facebook um, in, at, at Amazon and, and a few other companies like major tech companies. Um, and so despite sort of all the sound and fury over the politics of this, I think the example that Musk is setting here is that you can fire a lot of these people who have what I would call um, something close to uh, either email jobs, BS jobs, um, but they're now very uh, intertwined with ideology, right? So a lot of these, I think Yoel Roth is the perfect example. Um, he had this very, very lucrative position. Essentially, what he did was answer emails from the FBI and police speech on Twitter. His credentials for doing that were from an Ivy League university uh, where he wrote his dissertation on his own sex life. Right? This is the kind of elites that we are overproducing, and it's not really clear what they're adding to the bottom line, to the wealth of nations, however you'd like to phrase that. And I think the more important example that Elon Musk is setting is essentially saying you actually don't need to hire or pay an enormous payroll of these people uh, with this ideological justification behind their jobs. The ideological justification is not economic. I think there's a very similar thing going on with, with ESG um, where there's this sort of economic cover story, right? Uh, that is being told to CEOs that it's really important to, uh, to do these things, whether it's investing in certain um, woke connected funds because they have quote unquote better returns, even though that's unlikely to be true. Um, same thing that CEOs are told that you have to sort of hire out of this set of heavily ideologically credentialed university degree studded, um, very highly paid uh, folks out of this managerial class. And, I, and so I just think it's, it's um, undercover that example, especially as we go into a recession, as we go into uh, shrinking potentially in layoffs in tech companies, it may turn out to be that the most important aspect of Elon Musk's example has absolutely nothing to do with the surface level politics, but the fact that he fired all of the Harvard credentialed diversocrats, took them off the payroll, and took Twitter from, uh, in terms of public, um, public statements and, and sort of back of the envelope calculations, from a net negative uh, bottom line to a positive bottom line that's probably percentage-wise better than Apple or Google, um, just by completely eliminating and reducing the payroll. So I think that example, we may find out that, that our elites are not brought down by their ideological malfeasance, by um, their, their subscription to the woke ideology, so much as just by the fact that they're pretty much Homer Simpson. They're very well paid, 
based on elite credentials that long ago have been hollowed out and don't have a real relation to meritocracy. So um, I actually think that might be, uh, I kick it out to the group. I know that the digital public square debate is, is really, really important. And we think about it a lot from the political theory side and from the democracy side of things, but there might actually be a way to re substantially reduce the left's control over the very, very critical tech sector just by virtue of Elon Musk's example of, I mean, it might be him as a hard boss um, that actually has the bigger impact on getting a lot of this, this like sort of class of people out of the tech sector. I would just jump in and say the Wall Street Journal is reporting this week uh, so there was something like 50,000 50,000 tech layoffs in uh, November, which is higher than in the midst of the pandemic. We're seeing something like 26,000, I think is what the Wall Street Journal reported in one of the highest months during the pandemic. 50,000 tech layoffs in one month. Um, and I, I know we've talked about this before, but I think what Musk can challenge at Twitter. I agree with what Inez is saying. Um, and in a broader sense, there's this idea that we have a, a really, because of tech, a, a really fake economy um, in, in uh, ways that are almost incalculable. Um, how much of our economy is constructed on this like total house of cards um, in the years, especially since social media stocks. Um, and, and then you also have to add in um, how many consultants sort of sprouted out of the soil of the social media stocks, um, you know, diversity, ESG consultants, um, how big of a part of our economy is that? And will contractions in tech then ripple into those sectors and, and force them to contract to where they should be? I think that's definitely something to be looking out for. It'll take more than Twitter, of course. Um, but And we've seen media layoffs too. Um, so so I, I think there's so, some steps perhaps in a positive direction, um, but who knows you know, how far that, that ripple effect will go. Yeah, it strikes me that these things are a kind of a luxury. I'm sorry, am I am I coming on? Is my video coming on right now? Um, okay, so, uh, sorry, it strikes me that these things are kind of a luxury. Um, and the reason I say that is because it's like the kind of thing you can afford to do when you have a monopoly or when you have shareholders who are basically disinterested in profit making. Um, you know, Peter Thiel wrote Zero to One a while back. And, and a lot of what he talked about was that the power of having a monopoly, the monopolies aren't always bad, but that they actually give you the ability to do big long-term plans and, and just do things when you aren't like focused on the grind. But the, the flip side of that is that monopolies allow you to have an incredible amount of bloat. Um, and I think what Elon Musk showed is that Twitter had plenty of this bloat on its own. Um, probably my guess is the problem is worse at the companies like Facebook and Google that are much bigger um, and much less, uh, you know, have a much higher market cap, much less vulnerable to general investor pressure. Um, so I would suspect that this is a real problem. I think one strategic thing that you know we can do along these lines and as and, and sort is look for companies that are you know could be bought out in the way that Twitter was bought out by Elon Musk. Like I, I think that in general conservatives have not thought about this as a vector of activism, uh, but it, it seems pretty smart. You know we complained about Twitter for years and we're probably not going to get anywhere with regulation given the state of the Republican Party. Uh, but the, the the massive political landscape shift caused by Elon buying Twitter and simply changing its policies himself was dramatic. And so we need to think about like, how can we use market power to, to influence how these companies behave and, and who's hired by them, I guess would be the, the other way to think about it. Yeah, I agree. Elon Musk's acquisition and then the subsequent steps he's taken may well effectuate a market shift far outsized relative to that granted 40 plus billion dollar purchase. Uh, again, it's sad that we kind of have to resort to the, you know, build your own billionaire or get behind your own billionaires to engage in activism in order to push back. But of course, if the left is going to use the marketplace to coerce and form society to its whims, then of course, there has to be a counter reaction to it. And the, the marketplace is just one other domain in which we're in competition. Um, I will say, you know, more broadly, I, I do think there's something to the idea that maybe Elon Musk going in and dramatically slashing workforce within his company and showing that actually there's no change. And in fact, maybe the service is far superior, perhaps could effectuate shifts within other companies. But I also think realistically, economic calamity is when you find out kind of what is a legitimate enterprise and then what 
jobs within those enterprises are actually essential versus what aren't. So uh, one of the perverse but potentially positive consequences of economic decline, or at least a downward market cycle, may well be that kind of when the riptide go comes in and then goes back out, it reveals what is legitimate and what is not. Um, you know, the countervailing force here in terms of the broader notion of there are all these jobs that probably are unsustainable, probably don't exist, not only don't necessarily create value, but actually detract from value in a whole slew of areas, be it administrators, consultants uh, on items that have nothing to do ultimately with the bottom line and may well detract from it, is you have, of course, government and regulatory forces that essentially mandate the creation of these positions. So, and this is one of the reasons, of course, why you have support for these government policies, because ultimately they become massive jobs programs for the diversocrats, et cetera. And this is, of course, within academic institutions, within major financial institutions, and more broadly. So broader topic, but you do have state power as well that is aligned in effect with creating tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not more of these jobs. And so there's a sort of twisted relationship here that does get to an ideology that's behind these unsustainable jobs, ultimately weighing us down and undermining our society, I would argue. So perhaps something, a theme to explore more broadly in another episode. Uh, but with that, I'll transition to myself and go back to kind of the free speech aspect of the Elon Musk takeover with uh, more revelations in the Twitter files. These around the COVID-19 censorship regime that as with some of the prior dumps, we all suspected and could all see in real time with people getting suspended and tweets being flagged where what was claimed to be uh, dangerous mis dis and malinformation ultimately proving true by the CDC's own, own references and statistics, of course, uh, that in real time, there was real coercive pressure by the public health establishment to censor and silence and chill. Um, so David Zweig was responsible for putting out kind of this latest thread about a week before this episode. And apparently during this week, there's supposed to be more coming in the way of quote unquote Fauci files. We'll have to see how that plays out. Zweig himself summarized this dump as follows. And I think it was succinct and, and well put. Essentially what he found was, and they titled it, how Twitter rigged the COVID debate. Three major points. By censoring info that was true but inconvenient to U.S. government policy, that was one means of doing so. By discrediting doctors and other experts who disagreed. And by suppress suppressing ordinary users, including some sharing the CDC's own data. And it's important to note that at the outset of this thread, Zweig noted that the public health establishment from the outset, essentially, was not only in contact with Twitter about content moderation around COVID-19, but also Google, Facebook, Microsoft at all. And there's a similar thread there, of course, when it comes to the attacks over those who dared to question election integrity issues or beyond, where you had federal authorities colluding with and ultimately coercing, but oftentimes you know, very wittingly, a whole slew of big tech companies all engaging in a joint censorship regime with the federal government. Uh, so Zweig walks through, you know, efforts, of course, of the Biden administration to go after Alex Berenson specifically to take down he, his account and other, quote unquote, anti-vaxxer accounts. Zweig as well walks through the fact that actually, in many cases, Twitter executives uh, were more pro-free speech and pushed back on the Biden administration's demands, but that Twitter did suppress many views, many from doctors and scientific experts that conflicted with the official positions of the White House. As a result, legitimate findings and questions that would have expanded the public debate went missing. And of course, this involved any number of issues from natural immunity to vaccination of children, vaccine injuries, and the like, all of these issues that were completely verboten and to some extent still remain verboten. Uh, in several instances, Wyck himself notes eminent, sci eminent scientists, or at least physicians with you know, sterling reputations who teach at uh, prestigious academic institutions like Harvard epidemiologist Martin Kohldorf, who was dinged for tweeting in March 2021 that, quote, thinking that everyone must be vaccinated is a scientifically flawed as thinking nobody should. COVID vaccines are important for older, high-risk people and their caretakers. Those with prior natural infection do not need it, nor children. That, of course, got him slapped with a misleading label on his tweets. Uh, sometimes those sort of types of tweets triggered suspensions and the like. And basically what you get at the end of the day is a whole slew of evidence around specific individuals and specific tweets who were suppressed in one way or another 
to the detriment, of course, of science, open inquiry, debate, because as Weig puts it, essentially, the science prioritized mitigation over other concerns. Um, and he raises a good point at the end of this Twitter thread where he says, what might this pandemic and its aftermath have looked like if there had been more open debate on Twitter and other social media platforms, not to mention the mainstream press about the origins of COVID, lockdowns, the true risks of COVID and kids, and much more. So what are the takeaways from this? Well, again, I go back to what about the Google files, the Facebook files, and a whole slew of other big tech companies and their communications with administrations? What other pressure points did the public health establishment impose upon them and press. What's going on right now today in terms of government-backed content moderation within these various platforms? Um, and then, you know, one more point worth flagging, in the new year, a law went into effect in California, uh, something Inez flagged before this episode, which essentially can get doctors sanctioned for spouting, quote-unquote, medical misinformation around COVID-19. So in that case, there really is the state's definition of science. And to the extent a doctor runs afoul of it, it could lead to destruction, not just censorship, but actually of their careers in toto. So California essentially becoming the Twitter of content moderation when it comes to states on COVID-19. This shows you, of course, more broadly uh, how this pandemic was exploited to maximum extent to utterly obliterate our most fundamental rights. Um, so, you know, I open it up to the group, you know, what do you make of these revelations? To me, it seems like kind of this just confirms, this confirms numerous smoking guns of what we already knew, but what are the broader ramifications and what do we do next in response? I guess would be a couple important questions around it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think I said this the last episode, but it bears repeating in this context of this new dump. Next time there won't be these kinds of emails. Um, this is a black swan event. Elon Musk buying Twitter for the reasons that we discussed last, last segment and this segment, right? Um, it's, it's an unusual thing that only, as as Ben said, your own, our own build, build a billionaire, sort of rock up, sock up billionaires. Uh, this is not like a political process, right? Um, this is unusual, but it just confirms how much communication and influence is going back and forth between the government and these tech companies and probably you know, beyond the tax space, right? How much collusion there really is between the federal government and more specifically the administrative agencies of the federal government um, and, and so-called private business, right? Um, so that really is the model. This public-private partnership really is uh, the model that is, is kind of um, the challenge for us, uh, for anybody who wants to preserve the, the constitutional and, and American way, way of life that we're, you know, used to, even though that sounds so quaint to say these days, um, that really is the challenge on a broad set of sectors, specifically um, with regard to this, the specific information in this particular dump, right? Um, it shows to me the, the fact that we can't actually seed political judgment. Um, there's always an element of political judgment that even if there was free speech for experts, for example, right? Because um, Ben, you noted multiple times, some of the people who were suppressed, they 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 were, you know, doctors. They were um, people connected with prestigious universities, right? And and that that is good to point out because it shows how far the censorship regime actually extended. Um, but it's also worth noting that expertise cannot replace governing judgment. There's a reason why we elect people because these decisions are inherently political and based on political judgment. We can't outsource those kinds of decisions like, so even if we had a great expert class, right, a competent expert class, and uh, let's say Dr. Fauci was like a really serious epidemiologist and, and was um, operating in good faith about what, you know, the dangers and spreading uh, methods of COVID-19 were from day one. Like, let's let's pretend we're, we're living in that world, right? Um, even so, the job of, of a Dr. Fauci, right, is to basically try to tell the decision makers the facts, but they can't replace that kind of political judgment because you're always weighing, um, as you said, Ben, different elements here. You're weighing them against each other. What are the consequences of intervention? What are the consequences of not intervening, right? That's inherently a judgment call that isn't, uh, the experts, quote unquote, are no more um, qualified to make than anyone else. In fact, the only people who are qualified to make those kinds of judgment calls and comparisons about, you know, um, cost-benefit analysis to the whole country are people we elect for that position because they're accountable to us, 
right at the end of the day for those judgment calls that they made. Um, and so I think that's a really important sort of 10,000 foot framework to think about this. But yeah, it's it's obvious that um, with COVID and, and with many other issues like election integrity, and there's no limit to the number of issues that, that this um, structure will be applied to, right? Uh, as soon as something becomes, um, we saw it with the trans debate as well. Uh, it's it's breaking a little bit now in that traditional cycle of conspiracy theory banned off of Twitter to the New York Times admits it two years later, you know, <laughs> um, uh, cycle. We're seeing that break a little bit with, with some of the trans medical issues, uh, but we saw it with that issue as well. And there's no limit to the number of issues that will essentially be taken off the, the uh, digital public square for public debate by this public private sort of um, government quote, private sector influence, uh, mongering going both directions. And next time we won't have a smoking gun because next time they'll just call each other or they'll meet up at the diplomat. Um, yeah, really quick. Yeah, I mean, for a long time before, during the Trump administration, I said that the biggest threat when Democrats took over was a public-private censorship partnership. Um, I think that, that it turns out that was actually already going on. <laughs> That's one of the big revelations. We didn't have to wait until Biden took over for that to exist. Uh, I think the solution here is going to be some variant of civil rights law. Basically, you need something that these companies can point to when government officials come by trying to exert pressure on, on them to on their moderation decisions to say, well, if we did what you say we should do, we'd, it would be illegal and we get sued. Um, so we need very explicit tort law. Um, that protects the right of people to speak online. That's, you know, I've, I've promoted the idea of a private right of action for some time. I think that's the, you know, what what this indicates really is is the need for that. Um, we need to be careful with other sorts of reforms, though, because we do need to protect uh, the, like, for example, Elon's purchase of Twitter. He's suddenly running it in a free speech manner. We need to make sure that we aren't opening him up to massive lawsuits as a result of the laws we passed. Um, we need to make sure we use a scalpel and not a hammer. Um, and that is not what I would have said two years ago, um, but it's what I'm saying now. Uh, but that's, I think, the big thing to take away. I'll just uh, go ahead and transition the topic, um, but add one final thought, which is, I think one of the, I'm not in the camp that this is a quote unquote nothing burger um, that the whole Twitter files have been. I'm nowhere near in that camp. I think we've learned a lot of really interesting stuff, but it's also, I think, worth noting how much of this um, was happening out in the open, how much of this was openly being bragged about um, and demanded and then bragged about by uh, Democrats and uh, it, you know, members of Congress that, that actually want this this level of collusion. I think there's some segment of the population that wants this level of of collusion. Um, and so that puts us in a different, you know, there, there used to be a time where this would just be uh, abhorrent and we could all kind of agree with that, but uh, we're, we're not in that place anymore. We don't share that consensus. And uh, certainly uh, people in positions of power don't share that consensus. So I'm transitioning to talk about uh, the former president's Truth Social post that really made waves in the conservative movement. Um, he posted this on New Year's Day and said, I'll just read it. It wasn't my fault that the Republicans didn't live up to expectations in the midterms. It was 233 to 20. It was the, quote, abortion issue poorly handed by many, handled by many Republicans, especially those that firmly insisted on no exceptions, even in the case of rape, incest, or life of the mother that lost large numbers of voters. Also, the people that pushed so hard for decades against abortion got their wish from the U.S. Supreme Court and just plain disappeared, not to be seen again, plus Mitch, stupid dollar signs. Uh, I'm sure we'll probably all agree on whatever Mitch stupid dollar signs means. I don't know what it means to have to agree with it uh, because it, it sounds right. Uh, but uh, the the earlier part of that post, I'll say the SBA list, I think, came out and, and put out, issued a statement basically saying it was wrong. Um, personally, I think it's really dependent on what races you're talking about. I think there's, there's not a lot of evidence um, that it was decisive, that the issue was decisive. I think the vast majority of pro-life conservatives would say, even if that was the case, let's give you the argument, completely worth it because we're talking about life and death. Um, you know, but at, at the same time, if you're looking at like Michigan, where it was on the ballot, there was a referendum. Um, maybe, maybe that's the case in races like Alyssa Slotkin's. Um, I think you can can make that argument, uh, but that it was decisive overall, um, I think is maybe wishful thinking on, on Trump's part, who wants to find an easy scapegoat. Um, and I'll, I'll open this to the group kind of right away. I won't go on too much um, because I'm curious to say what everyone else thinks of it. I think that's uh, probably more interesting because uh, there's 
a lot of different directions that we can kind of go on here. I don't think it's shocking to anyone to see Trump making this this argument. Um, but you know, maybe a good question to open up to the group is what does this say about his positioning right now and his mentality right now? Um, because we've already kind of talked about the what happened in the midterms. So with that, I'll I'll toss it to everyone else. Um I guess I'll, I'll start. I mean, his mentality to, just to, to take you off is it's not my fault, right? That's That's been his mentality for some time now. Some of the midterm results are not my fault and I'm running for president and I'm going to win. Uh, that's And so he's, I think the, the problem with his analysis, like, and I'm not even speaking as a particularly, you know, like socially conservative person, but the problem is that there are plenty of people who did extremely well without his endorsement and with pretty aggressive stances on life. People like Brian Kemp, people like Ron DeSantis, you know, one big, one big in their states when other candidates didn't do as well. And when you compare the relative performance of like candidates he endorsed, he endorsed in close races versus candidates he didn't, people he didn't did better in the general. I mean, and you don't, you don't have to be silly. Like the, I think the most obvious example of this is look at what the Democrats were running as ads against Herschel Walker before the runoff. The ad was really simple. It was just a video of Donald Trump endorsing him. Uh, so, you know, there's, I think much of what this is, is Trump himself trying to just create this environment where people are trying to blame everything else but uh, the but himself and and but like his lack of popularity, and as a result, I think he stumbled into a minefield here. I don't think blaming pro pro life voters for not coming out is the right answer. I think they did. I don't think blaming you know maybe it was probably not strategic for Lindsey Graham to propose a federal abortion ban, but I just I don't think that was the driving factor. And I think in general. You know Trump's problem is you know he he announced he's running for president and I think he's he's kind of capped on his support in the sense that everybody already knows who he is everybody has their feelings about him it's not he's not fresh this is in 2016 and constantly finding excuses for why senators didn't win as opposed to like figuring out how he's actually going to persuade people to come back into the tent and be like this is the guy even though he lost test last time this is the guy who's going to be the right guy going forward he's he's got to do so much better yeah um so what I would add to this is, you know, don't succeed because you might cost us the midterms. Like, don't get any substantive victories because it might cost Republicans the midterms the next way around um, is not how the left thinks um, at all. And we shouldn't think that way either. Um, Rachel Bovard has a great analogy uh, for how Republicans think about political power, which is as a trophy to put on the shelf and be polished when, in fact, it's meant to be used. So I agree wholly with what Emily said um, that like, even if it were true that this issue cost Republicans the elections, um, I think many conservatives would rather take the W and, um, and, and let the Republicans lose, especially as when they are in power, it doesn't seem like it gets us a whole heck of a lot. Um, so I just, that whole frame, I don't think is, is sort of a worthwhile way of thinking about this. Um, it's, it, whether or not abortion, the issue actually did cost uh, Republicans considerable votes uh, in, in the midterms. Um, it, it's hard to say, uh, in part, I think, because of the confounding factor of uh, the student loan bailout, right? So what is undeniable is that there was a surge of younger voters turning out for the Democratic Party. Um, and it's not clear whether they were driven by the abortion issue and, and especially the, the sort of hyperventilating about the abortion issue um, by, by the media uh, and all the usual suspects. Um, or if it was just the payout uh, that that Joe Biden promised uh, on on student loan forgiveness, um, which also there are some surveys that show that had an impact on on young Democrat voter turnout as well. Um, but I do think there's there's probably something somewhat difficult uh, it, for the Republican Party um, in terms of coalition building around this issue, because what it does is it splits the culture wars of the 90s from the culture wars of the, the 2023s. I guess we're now in 2023. Um, the, the fact that Roe v. Wade was overturned um, has has reinserted abortion into a political discussion uh, in a very legitimate way, has returned that issue to the people um, to, as it always should have been. Uh, but it's still, I, I can see how it, it does um, make it more difficult, I suspect, for Republicans to make inroads into uh, some groups they need, like suburban women, um, 
especially since a lot of the people who are interested in voting Republican from that group are actually uh, sort of being brought there by the, the platform that Glenn Youngkin ran on, right, which is culture war issues, but culture war issues for um, the more modern era, meaning what's being taught in schools, perhaps uh, some COVID issues and freedom uh, issues. So I do think it could be a tricky issue for the Republican Party going forward. I don't like the framing that Donald Trump puts here uh, as basically, uh, you know, it's 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 uh, the fault of the W. Um, it's kind of a self-own uh, in, in a sense, because that's one of his biggest selling points for conservatives is that he can point to uh, appointees on the court and this this um, sort of uh, monumental overturning of this 1973 decision that has been part of, of the conservative goal for a very long time. So I do think it's a bit of a cell phone on his part. So we've discussed before, you know, the myriad factors that were reflected in the midterms. And of course, I think Emily's right that you kind of have to go race by race. We obviously know that uh, as well noted, you know, there were several gubernatorial candidates who, you know, pretty soon after the Dobbs ruling came down, then went on to enact laws, uh, which were more restrictive in the way of protecting life. <clears throat> um, so, you know, I think we can have all manner of debates to the end of time about what factors were most significant and to what extent and in what races and the like. I do think certainly that Donald Trump is right that the communications were very poor. I'm not sure what the Republican Party message was subsequent to Dobbs. It was clearly mixed. I would have advocated for going on the offensive against the left. I think every single Democrat should have been put on record. Are you for infanticide or not? You know, at how many weeks? Ask them that question. Democrats clearly thought that this was an issue they could exploit because especially in many of the closely contested races, they put all their eggs in the abortion basket, thinking this would drive out the necessary voters to get over the 50% margin. And I think they should have been put on their back heels because I do think that the Democratic Party message is essentially abortion right up until birth, and in some cases, maybe after birth. And that they, sh they should have been put on record on that issue. Um, so there should be better communication there as well, consistent with our principles. But I do think Emily hit on the, the proper question here. One of the proper questions here, which is, you know, what was the point of communicating this? And I think, you know, reading the tea leaves, it would seem to be that Trump thinks that he ought he, this may appeal to some of those voters that he thinks are going to be needed in order to get over a 50% margin, or at least in those hotly contested states. And so it's interesting to see him pivot of all issues on the abortion issue uh, to kind of trying to cater, I think he believes, to the less conservative voters who might have otherwise been turned off or might have otherwise been open to the Republican message, but could have been turned off on this issue. So it'd be interesting to see what the polling was that he and his campaign were looking at and what bearing, if any, that had on this message at this time in this way. And with that, I guess we can turn it over to Will to talk about this uh, stirring speakers race that we're seeing play out in real time as we're recording this episode. Yeah, no, this is this is happening right now. I've been trying to follow along while we do the podcast to my uh, chagrin, but um, and I've been involved in this a little bit. And and full disclosure, you know, I'm in contact with some of the people on the McCarthy uh, in sort of the McCarthy orbit, um, kind of getting sort of the inside scoop on what's going on. But basically. We have this, you know, clearly right now we have a massive fight ongoing within the House GOP caucus about McCarthy's speakership. Um, there are something somewhere between five and 20 people who don't want to vote for him uh, to be the speaker of the House and are not have not made a deal with him, despite McCarthy going very, you know, doing a lot of work to try and negotiate. Um, I have a pretty strong view on this, which is that I think this is really, really dumb. I think I think the fight over who's the speaker of the House in this session is incredibly silly. And, and there, there are a few reasons I think that. Um, the first is uh, we only have, we have the tiniest majority imaginable. Um, we have like three seats. And so the idea that we could, you know, get a really good conservative speaker through with that is is almost impossible. And and, and that's, that's followed by the fact that McCarthy won the intra-caucus intra vote to be majority leader by something like 186 to 30. Um, so he has this default, very strong position 
And so, you know, even if you aren't like the most inclined person towards McCarthy, which I'm, I'm not, I, I, there's a lot of things McCarthy did, especially stuff like, you know, don't, you know, spending money against Joe Kent in, in Washington, for example, I find really obnoxious. All the Ukraine stuff I find obnoxious. But at the end of the day, the question is like, what can Republicans expect to get out of a slim House majority? Well, we have, we have subpoena power, we have committees, we have investigations. That's, that's really the only thing that's ever going to get done. We're not going to get our legislation through because we don't control the Senate or the presidency. Um, but we can, you know, actually do some real damage to the Democrats in, you know, the in the public sphere by investigating things like the origins of COVID and Hunter Biden's laptop and the energy crisis and the border crisis and figuring, you know, getting to the bottom of any of the malfeasance. But I just don't think. But apparently, I, I don't see what the Republicans who are going against McCarthy actually are tr trying to accomplish, other than their sort of personal animus against McCarthy. Um, based on what I'm seeing, there's there's almost no hope that they can get their preferred candidate in. And there's also this real, real big downside risk, um, this sort of potential calamity that could happen, which is if McCarthy can't get 218 votes because there are these incalcitrant rebels on one side, and then the moderate people who are furious at, at Matt Gates and Andy Biggs and those guys are not going to vote for the Freedom Caucus's preferred candidate, then the only way to get 218 is with Democrat votes. So you have this ter terrible outcome where maybe some moderate Republicans and the Democrats en masse vote for a really, really rhino person who gives the Democrats what they want on subpoena power and screws it up, screws us all out of the chance to do anything real with investigations. So I'm, I'm really, you know, I, I'm, I'm definitely have a stance on this issue. Like I'm, I'm, I'm biased. I think it's crazy to be trying to like, I think this is the stupidest side to pick. McCarthy is not the best man in the world, but he's fine as speaker and, you know, given the given the fact that he's also already agreed to allow all these investigations that we've been talking about. So, I mean, I, I'm, I assume some of you probably disagree with me here, but I, I think this is crazy. Yeah, I don't disagree at all. I'm, I'm pretty much on mm -hmm. the same page. Um, and I wrote about this back in September after I, I interviewed McCarthy. Um, and I think that the sort of 30,000 foot view is more useful here uh, anyway, because there are so many good reasons to see Kevin McCarthy as an avatar of the failed Republican Party establishment. So from that 30,000 foot view, it is completely logical to say, it is a damn shame that the Republican Party in 2023, post-Trump, um, is, is looking at leadership from Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy. Um, and, and yeah, that's true. But Kevin McCarthy is so deeply transactional as a human being and as a politician um, that they have been able to, conservatives have been able to bring Kevin McCarthy over more than just about anybody else would have come over for them. Um, partially mm -hmm. that's because he saw what happened with January 6th. Uh, partially that's because he saw what happened with the Trump impeachments. And that's kind of what he explained to me. That doesn't mean he's now some sort of conservative firebrand, but it means that he's really fed up with the Democrats um, and to the point where that gave conservatives was a lot of leverage and they got the motion to vacate. Um, and that's like a huge victory for them. That was something that Pelosi got rid of after it was used to oust Boehner um, in, by, by Mark Meadows. And so like, these are really big steps. He's going to do the investigations. He brought back the motion to vacate. It's basically getting everything they want from him. And I see the, the sort of remaining upset um, as personal grievances. Those personal grievances may be uh, stand-ins, they may be representative for the broader Republican dissatisfaction with Kevin McCarthy. And I say representative in a very literal sense. That's what people are supposed to do, represent um, their mm -hmm. constituents. And I think their constituents are, are furious with people like Kevin McCarthy. So to some extent, it makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. But all that said, like from a tactical perspective, it, it just honestly is, it, it, it's not a really big deal that you'll have to Kevin McCarthy as Republican leader. Republican leaders are always going to be, uh, for the most part, lame. And it is sad that we're in that position. But man, this is like the least lame of all of the options because conservatives have done such a good job uh, maneuvering. So take the W. Yeah, um, worth worth pointing out here that the House majority used to have incoming House majority used to have two tools, not just one, right? One was investigations and oversight that will point it out. They also were going to have a, a negotiating hand on the budget. But of course, Mitch McConnell sold that tool away before they ever got a, a, you know, a hand on it um, with the omnibus bill instead of doing a, a CR, right? Instead of giving the income 
coming majority of the Republican Party some actual leverage in the budget negotiations, uh, he decided to totally give that away to, to Democrats, right? Um, so just I, I, I'm still mad about that is all <laughs> I have to point out. Um, but I think here, the job of the speaker is less ideological and more about respect for the various factions of the Republican Party. I, I'm, you know, I'm a realist. I understand that the Republican elected officials, as, as Emily said, they're always going to be lame to some extent. Um, I, I, I think the bare minimum, though, that I expect from a speaker is to respect his right flank. Um, I understand that the right flank of the Republican Party is not going to win every single battle, uh, but I think McCarthy has passed that basic threshold, which again, is not to say that I think he's a great speaker of the House, uh, but he does seem much more willing to negotiate and to sit down with his right flank um, than, say, McConnell has been. McConnell seems to me actually like the, the much more... Um, a bigger problem of, of the two sort of establishment leaders right now. Uh, it seems like McConnell is not dedicated to electing Republicans if those Republicans are going to be on his right flank. He'd rather deal with Democrats than Republicans of a certain stripe, of a populist stripe. That That's unforgivable in a party leader, in my view. Um, and, and also is willing to, again, against his part partisan interests, sell the powers of the incoming Republican majority away. So he seems to be, even though we're no closer to getting rid of him, he seems to me to be a much bigger problem um, than, than Kevin McCarthy, who has been willing to sit down with conservatives to listen to their concerns, which is not to say that he always executes on them um, by, by any stretch of the imagination. So uh, it, it does seem to me to be uh, a bit of, um, just like, like Emily said, you know, it's, it's not strategic. Uh, to do this in this way. And, and like Will, Will said, um, even though I sympathize very much with the, the underlying sort of uh, sensibility that Republicans just don't represent uh, the, the actual interests of, of the voters who elect them. And in fact, the, the attitude, unfortunately, is more often than not that, that uh, those, those concerns are somehow illegitimate or uh, embarrassing even in Washington, D.C. And I think that that is engendering a huge amount of anger. It, it pushed the Tea Party to the front. It elected Donald Trump, right? That fundamental disconnect between the leadership of the Republican Party and uh, the concerns of its voters uh, will continue to be really important. I just think that this is probably not the most strategic way for that conflict to play itself out. Yes, yeah, so I'll be brief. Um, I do think this entire situation, once again, represents kind of a perverse silver lining to the very small Republican majority in the House, which is that the House Freedom Caucus uh, and like-minded members of the House uh, who are putting up a fight over a slew of issues, including the rules package, power for conservatives on various committees, uh, oversight powers and, and you know, for example, a church style committee on weaponized deep state uh, in this country. Uh, all of that is essentially bridging the base with the party establishment, with those who truly wield power within the House. So thanks to the small majority, conservatives have uh, more representation than they otherwise would uh, not in terms of where the American people are and Republican voters are, but in terms of the composition of the House itself. Um, so I have, you know, I don't have a a, a horse in this battle, uh, kind of in terms of, you know, what is tactically the right thing to do for conservatives to wield maximum power under this House? Who is the best person to do it? Uh, is Kevin McCarthy going to adhere to some of the commitments that he made? Is the portrayal that he has not given firm commitments on a whole slew of issues, including conservative representation on some of these committees, or that the rules package itself is insufficient because it, as I've seen some conservatives passing around some notes on this, you know, for example, the speaker himself can, I believe, still shoot down uh, various subpoenas that committees might want to bring towards individuals. I've read that the oversight powers for committees may well not be up to snuff relative to the intransigence that the Biden administration is going to put up, as we've already seen uh, since before the Republican House majority uh, was seated. Um, you know, I don't know how all of these are going to play out. I'm sure we'll probably have a better sense by next week's episode, but it is worth flagging it at minimum, I think, and commending those conservatives for standing up and putting forth, you know, here's the bare minimum of what needs to be represented for whoever 
uh, intends to get our vote to be this next speaker. And thank God they have that influence because had it been a large majority with an even greater, you know, essentially establishment percentage majority in that majority, uh, conservatives would have been even more marginalized. And that gap between where the voters are and where their representatives are would have grown even greater, leading to even more animus and you know, dysfunction. And with that, we can uh, turn it over to our parting shots with whoever wants to get started. I can jump in. Uh, I was just thinking as we were on that last topic, um, how pathetic it is that there's there's no there was no real comparison to what's happening in the House on the Senate side with Mitch McConnell, um, <laughs> because that is where, you know, I think this is where there's actually like immense room for depression and like con conservative depression and um, actually like fury. The fact that, you know, the, the real alternative was basically Rick Scott and that wasn't very serious. Um, and, and even Rick Scott, when he sort of tried to fill the leadership vacuum that Mitch McConnell left by, you know, staunchly refusing to run on an agenda because he thinks arrogantly that is the only campaign strategy that could ever work for Republicans in a year like that. Um, and Rick Scott had his, his plan that had some really good things and then had, you know, proposed cuts to Social Security that were used by Democrats, I think, effectively in a way that Rick Scott didn't anticipate. Uh, but the fact that that's what the leadership battle looked like on the Senate side is just utterly pathetic and a disservice to voters. And what you can say on the House side is that at least there were huge concessions that had to be made. Whatever happens with McCarthy, at least House Republicans um, are more representative of the general population, representative. And yes, they're supposed to be um, more representative than the Senate. Um, and so in some sense, that is like a, a good reflection of the, the constitutional um, design, but it's not in the sense that uh, there are very few Republicans that actually support Mitch McConnell, period. He's one of the least popular politicians, even among Republicans uh, in the country, period. And he he's not interested in um, advancing issues that voters care about most. So I, it's just like incredibly pathetic to to witness um, the shape of the the Senate Republican the Republican Party on the Senate side, um, and that matters a whole lot. So that that should be the next like big battleground uh, for conservatives, and you know that's part of the reason why we we said goodbye to Rachel. She's over there uh, doing what she can, um, but it, just the the state of things on that on the, in the upper chamber is really pathetic. Yeah, yeah, it's really bad. Um, I think. Uh one of the reasons again is that you know they they did, we didn't win in the senate so mitch mcconnell can just comfortably hold on to his majority with you know half of the republicans um whereas kevin you know to his credit you know and this is a good thing i think has to work and get try and get the support of the whole caucus i think it's good that he has to take into account the right point because we've discussed before um but i feel like yeah we're about to we're about to snatch uh defeat from the jaws of victory here uh you know getting a lot of concessions out of kevin and then still voting against him means that yeah, I, I suspect things are going to get a lot worse. Actually, I think we'll get somebody like a Fred Upton type, somebody who voted to impeach the president and who's there relying on Democrat votes. So I'm real. I'm, I don't know. I'm a little, 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 a little worried about just you know basically having to wait until 2024 when we have the Republican nominee who can unify the party. Um, I'd like to use my final thoughts uh, time to just read the list of Republican senators who voted yes on the omnibus bill. Um, and that was Roy Blunt from Missouri, John Boozman, Shelley Capito, Susan Collins, John Cornyn, Tom Cotton, which surprised me, Lindsey Graham, Jim, Jim Inhofe, Mitch McConnell, Jerry Moran, Lisa Murkowski, Rob Portman, Mitt Romney, Mike Rounds, Richard Shelby, John Thune, Roger Wicker, and Todd Young. Sorry, guys, I hate all of you now. That's my final thought. Geez, it's really tough to follow these up. Um, I, I guess I'll take it in a in a different direction, maybe a slightly more, not an optimistic direction, but something that could actually prove positive in the next couple of years, which is uh, in no small part on account of the demands of conservatives in the House, it does appear that there is increasing momentum for something like a church-style committee to take place. Now, it hasn't been defined church style. I take it to mean a committee that invested 
investigates abuses, weaponization, hyper-politicization of the national security apparatus. And I hope that goes beyond the FBI and DOJ. And I hope that committee is fully empowered to do anything and everything possible to get to the full scope of the weaponization and hyper-politicization of the national security apparatus that we've seen. Um, so, you know, Kevin McCarthy himself has referenced, you know, specifically church style committee. I know Jim Jordan and Comer have talked about this as well. Any such committee, of course, would make sense because it could cross several areas of jurisdiction. I think there are major questions that have to be hashed out, and I'll probably write about this in the coming days, about what the areas are to be probed, what that committee is going to do to actually get out in front of the vicious backlash that will come to the extent it dares to threaten to get to the bottom of myriad scandals that we know exist within that deep state. The personnel associated with the committee is going to be hugely critical in who is picked for it. Uh, tactically, what the areas are that it pursues, I think is really important in a limited two-year time period. And given the intransigence that there's going to be from whoever the Democrats are that would sit on any such committee, and then probably some percentage of the Republicans who sit on it as well. Um, all of this, I think, is hugely meaningful in the time to come on the merits. You know, how much a House Oversight Committee can ultimately do, get to the bottom of, given you're going up against an entire deep state, to the extent you don't have controlled opposition on your side working the case, uh, is all to be determined, but absolutely vital in the entire scope of potential tools to fight back against the tip of the spear of the war of wrong thing that we've seen, which has been driven first by the deep state. Uh, usually important, and I, I pray that House Republicans do establish such a committee and go at it with full gusto, because this is absolutely vital if we're going to have a country at the end of the day. So on that note, on behalf of Inez, Emily, and Will, thanks for tuning in. I'm Ben Weingarten, and we'll see you at the next NatCon Squad.